Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. And uh, welcome. If you missed Linda's first welcome, uh, you're really welcome here today. And uh, if you're watching online, it's really very good to have you with us. We are um, continuing this series in, John, in 1 John. So it'd be really good if you had the text in front of you. Uh, 1 John, chapter, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So, you know, get it on your device. Or if you're old school like me, you could have it in... Uh, in, 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 in a paper copy, um, whatever, just make sure you've got the Bible in front of you, that would be great. And um, before I start, just wanted to thank the band, that was really, I mean, really good. Thank you so much, and um, I can't see Daryl, he's no doubt somewhere around, I'm just missing him, but yeah, really grateful to all of you, and they'll be back, and we'll have another time, thank you Daryl, yeah, he's just waving at me now, uh, um, they'll be back uh, to lead us in some more worship at the end of the service after we've shared communion together. Now, um, those of you who've been following this series will know that uh, the context of this letter is that there's been a church split, that some of the members of the church have gone off, they're holding different teachings, they're claiming they're the true church, and John is writing to, say, to, to help this, that the bunch that are left behind and presumably feeling a bit beleaguered, um, he's writing to give them guidance to say how they can know for sure that they're on the right side of the tracks, okay? He, he gives them tests and says, if you pass these tests, if, this, if these things are true of you, then you're authentic Christians. And uh, this is a profound question, isn't it? How do we know there are so, you know, in all the kind of supermarket of spiritual options for us, not only within Christianity, but beyond the boundaries of Christianity, into new religious movements and other religions and all the options, how can we know that what we've got is a real thing? And John, who after all had met the, you know, had lived with Jesus, met with Jesus after Jesus had been raised from the dead, um, he starts by saying, we are eyewitnesses of what happened with Jesus. You remember that was the first sermon we had. And then he goes on to say, if you're an authentic follower of Jesus, these things will be true of you. Can I have the next slide, please? And so far, as we've gone through his letter, these themes have emerged. First of all, authentic Christian faith must be based on the testimony of the apostles. It was the apostles who knew Jesus. It was the apostles who wrote the New Testament. It was the apostolic doctrine, the apostolic proclamation about Jesus that was authoritative. There were loads of people, even at this stage, who had their own ideas and were circulating them. But what John says is, whether it's me, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, whether it's James, we preach the same message about Jesus and that message is authoritative. So there is the question of doctrine. Do you believe the New Testament, the proclamation of the apostles concerning Jesus Christ? The second test that John establishes is the test of love, the test of relationship. Is God, do you have a deep-rooted sense of God's fatherly love for you? Elsewhere, Paul can say that is the heart of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. That God is our Father. That we have this sense of intimacy with him. And secondly then, that that, that, that birth within us 
bowels of compassion for other people. This is an old-fashioned expression, bowels of compassion. It comes out of the King James Version, but I think it's much better. Uh, it's much more graphic and, uh, and gutsy uh, than more contemporary language, which tends to be a bit flatter. Is there right down in the heart of who you are a compassion for others, a love for others? If you're an authentic Christian, there'll be a sense in you of God's love for you, that he's your father, that you can reach out to him in prayer, and there'll be a transformed view of other people. We'll come to that in a little while. And then thirdly, the third test is that we'll live a life of genuine righteousness, truth, integrity, and purity, and holiness. That's the family likeness, as we'll see. You know, I, if, um, if a child bears no resemblance physically or otherwise to their family, you would think something was amiss. The family likeness of Christian people is that they live holy lives. That's what's being said here. Now, before we go any further, I reckon for each of us, we will have one or maybe two of those that we're very comfortable with. They're no great challenge to us. Maybe you're sort of more on the spiritual end and you think, yeah, 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 I'll go to a prayer meeting and, and spend two hours reveling in God's love. But I start to get a bit uncomfortable if people preach doctrine too much. After all, doctrine divides. It's all about a relationship, isn't it? But then there's other people who will say, no, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated. Give me a Bible study. Give me two and a half hours of Bible study. I'm good. I love all that. Let's dice. Let's get into ever more you know, abstruse doctrine and debate it all out. But if you invite them to a prayer meeting, uh, got other things to do. You need all three. John doesn't say 66% is the pass mark, or worse, 33%. These are the three marks, according to John, of the authentic Christian person. They've had a transforming experience of God that's made them a person of love. They have a thirst for the message and they hold fast to the message that the apostles brought about Jesus Christ. And thirdly, there is developing holiness, righteousness, truthfulness, purity in their character. All right. So let's, uh, let's look at how this plays out in this passage here, because what we'll find in this passage here is that there's a big emphasis on the relationship, there's a, and, and how that plays out, a, a, a small amount of application to love, although next week or two weeks' time when we look at the next passage, there'll be a big emphasis on love, uh, love for others in particular, and there's a lot in here on purity. And so we'll be emphasizing those things. First of all then, the relationship you have with God. Now, in chapter 3 verse 1 is one of my favorite verses in scripture because it's I think it might be the first scripture I ever memorized. And I memorized it in the King James version. It is very deeply rooted in my mind. So in the King James version, I'll probably get it wrong now having said that. Behold, it says behold. That's that's kind of a word that's meant to get your attention. I kind of shout it, but I'm a bit self-conscious about shouting. Behold! What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And in the modern version, see. It's a bit weak, isn't it? 
see. It's behold, uh, see. What great love the Father has lavished, that's a good word, lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, more inclusive. We are the children of God. This is the fundamental work of the Holy Spirit, is to convince you of that. That you have been adopted into God's family and now you are his dearly loved son or daughter. The relationship in the New Testament, the, the, the revelation of God in the New Testament much more emphasises God as Father than you'll find in the, in the Old Testament. Um, it is there in the Old Testament, but Jesus revealed God to us as our Abba Father. Not inappropriate to call him Daddy, even though many of us find that a bit difficult because we, we struggle to equate that with, 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 um, with the God of heaven. But he has that tender care for each one of us. And just dwell on that. Could I have the next slide, please? Just dwell on that for a moment. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to give birth to and to sustain in you all through life. And, of course, the problem is, for many of us, we're far too busy to give time to our relationship with God. We've got far more important things to do. And... Um, if we only gave, I mean, what, how much time do you think a Christian person should give to nurturing their relationship with God? I'll leave you to be the judge of it. But my guess is, by and large, uh, at root, uh, we, at the root of who we are and at the root of our Christianity, we just don't devote enough time to it. Here's a little social experiment for you. Think of whoever is your best friend. I suggest you leave church, end of church, and say, I, I really do need to do a social experiment to prove myself, some, prove something to me. Uh, so um, do you mind if I don't contact you at all for a year and then just, we'll meet up in a year's time and see how close we feel to each other after that. No contact whatsoever. I think you'll sense a chilling effect coming down the phone uh, in the first few moments of that experiment. And yet many of us are doing that to a greater or less degree in our relationship with God and have maybe done it for years. Never really given time to pray. And so our relationship with the Holy Spirit is very distant. We're far too busy. And yet, this is meant to be our root identity. There's a lot of talk about identity in the world. This is meant to be our identity, that we are the children of God. And that holds us secure through all the ups and downs of life. That whatever the world throws at me, I'm absolutely rock solid secure that God is my father. And all is well with the world. All right. And then, of course, the inevitable... Incidentally, if you are too busy, there's increasing resources out there for people like us to teach us to slow down. It's good for you on every level and uh, probably will make you more effective, actually. If you do less, you'll be more effective. Um, I strongly commend that if you're a person who takes your Christian faith seriously, that you, if you're too busy, slow down for goodness sake and start, divide, start wasting time with God, right? Go for a walk. Do stuff which means you just can't get busy. Put your phone down 
and say to God, I haven't got the first idea how to pray, would you begin to teach me? I love the image of Zacchaeus, who is a short guy. Jesus is coming through town, so he did the only thing he could, which is to climb a tree. Many of us would have been too busy. So, when you read those words, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, I hope that thrills your heart. And if, when you draw near to God, one of the inevitable consequences is that you will start to love others too. That he, as soon as you're coming close to God, God is love, that's going to start to rub off on you. So people who've spent time in God's presence will inevitably start to become a blessing to others if they are authentic in their relationship with God. Love of others, love for God. This is one of the tests that John clearly establishes. Right at the end of the passage we looked at today, um, anyone who does not do what is right, and we'll come to that in a moment, is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Um, go to the next slide, please. Love between believers is critically important. Um, these days, I believe, I'm, not, I'm obviously not an expert on these things, although I'm married to one. Um, in um, hospital, there's a lot of concern about kind of superbugs, aren't there? And there's all sorts of procedures they go through to try and make sure there's no superbugs in the hospital. Because then people, you, know, you get this horrible situation of people going in uh, with one sickness and ending up much worse off because they've caught something terrible in hospital. And um, I've often thought, you know, it's a bit like the church. The church is meant to be a place which is um, morally and relationally... Uh, sterile in the sense that it's, it's clean. You're not going to pick up a bug when you come in. You're not going to leave church community in a worse place than when you went in. There are some churches where they're busy absolutely undermining their message by the way they treat one another. And lots of people have been turned off the Christian faith, haven't they? Because they had an expectation when they walked in, well, if this Christianity is true, it will be perfect in here. And they rub up against somebody who isn't quite, uh, who is, hasn't treated them very well, and the whole thing falls apart like a plaque of cards. Now, to some extent, there's a maturity issue there. But equally, it's not very good if we invite people into church and what they see here is worse than what they see outside of the church, right? That's going to undermine our message. If there's anything in it, they will expect to see love between brothers and sisters. We each have a responsibility for this. We each have a responsibility to forgive one another when things have gone wrong. We each have a responsibility to try and make sure we're not... We're not giving other people need to forgive us. We want unity. We, we would love to be able to say to people outside, wouldn't we, when, when, you're, when you're next in a discussion at work about institutional racism or gender justice or whatever, wouldn't it be great if you could say, you should come to church, we've solved it. I mean, we haven't, have we? We're sinners. I know that. I'm not complacent about it. But I do think that where the Spirit of God is active and people are genuine, 
then we start telling the truth to each other and actually we start to make some progress. Tangible progress that can be pointed to. This is what we're called to. Loving God, enjoying that relationship with him and loving others. That's, that's a test that John is bringing out again in this passage. It's a serious one. There is no authentic Christianity without that. We're kidding ourselves. I recently visited uh, a dear uh, elderly black lady in our congregation called Joyce Trotman. Actually, she doesn't come to our church, but she comes to Cameo, uh, our midweek meeting. And um, uh, she's a really, uh, really lovely person. And we had a good chat, but she showed me this, this program she's been watching on TV. And it's basically a, a historian who, um, who is looking at the history of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. And the clip she showed me featured um, a plantation. And this British historian was talking to a local historian about what had been going on there. And uh, it was weird, really, because there it is in this, uh, this far-flung country, but with a very European-looking mansion house overlooking what would have been the plantation. And, the, um, uh, and next to the house was this very nicely designed house to one side or building to one side. Obviously, a fair bit of effort had gone into making it look nice. And a local, uh, the British historian, I think, said, well, what was this used for? And the... Um, the local historian said, oh, yes, well, this was the house that the slave master had specially built for where he could rape the female slaves. And no doubt, the slave master, being a good, upright Victorian gentleman, or no, pre-Victorian, wouldn't it have been, would no doubt have gone to church on Sunday, said his prayers, and sung his songs. And I say there is no way on earth that at least at that stage of his life, his faith was genuine. Couldn't have been. Unthinkable. It fails the love test, and it fails the purity test. It is inconceivable that somebody could have an authentic relationship with the God of love and do that. I say his faith was a sham. And that's an extreme example. Incidentally, Joyce did say something very funny after that to me. She said, you white people, she said, you're very clever. <laughs> she said, you came and treat us like that. Then you teach us Christianity, so we'll have to forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that. <laughs> um, so let's come to purity then, because that's where the majority of uh, the emphasis is in this passage. I need to move along, so I've only got a short while. Here we've got a lot of verses saying, if we are truly Christian, then the family likeness of purity, moral purity, will run through us. And without moral purity, no one gets to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Moral purity truthfulness, faithfulness, absolute integrity with money, with resources, honesty, sexual self-control. These things 
are an essential mark of Christian faith. And don't let anyone lead you astray, John says. He says, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Don't be fooled into thinking, this righteousness test doesn't apply because I've got a relationship with God. The New Testament warns us again and again. Jesus warned us. Many people will be deluded into thinking they've got a relationship with God, but their actions, the fruit of their lives, will show it's not true. That's to be found in the scriptures again and again. So John says, don't let anyone lead you astray. Now there are many, many, many people, even Christian people, who are openly teaching right now, and it has been the case through the church, through the church's history, that one or other of God's rules no longer apply, or never did apply. But what does John say here? He says, what is sin? Sin is lawlessness, he says. Now what does that mean? He's referring to the Old Testament law, God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, rules for sexual conduct, rules for how we should speak to one another and treat one another, they apply. And you cannot delude yourself that you know God and he's your father and you're having this lovely relationship with him and then just ignore his instructions for how human beings should live. John says, that's phony. You're deluding yourself. And, and he warns us that people will be actively teaching that that's possible. And we mustn't let people lead us astray. It matters what we do, and if we are truly Christian, can I have the next slide please, and the one after that? If we are truly Christian, then we will bear the family traits. First of all, he says, if you have genuinely experienced the new birth, 2.29, if you truly know him, know God, you will do what is right. I'll pause there for a moment uh, and just examine that because that's, that's really important. He's not saying you'll be perfect. He never says that. But he says you will not continue to sin. My favourite way of sort of summarising that is you won't make peace with sin in your life. Sure, you'll fail. Everybody fails. You might fail terribly in, at moments. But you won't be sitting down with an architect to build a nice building where you can systematically abuse others and neither will you be planning ways that you can live when you do sin it will grieve you the family trait of Jesus if Jesus is your brother if God is your father then there will be this mark of deep hunger to live a morally pure upright honest life do not let anyone lead you astray. Do not think, oh, I find this a bit painful in our culture, which says anything goes, do what you want, you'll find true life if you just abandon the rules and do whatever you like. You're, you've got to search for love, find it wherever you can find it. This cuts straight across that. It says, don't kid yourself. If you're in the family of God, there will be this desire for holiness justice, righteousness, and if it's absent, 
get on your knees before God immediately. The family trait of Jesus and the family trait of the devil. When we do sin, John has already taught us, because Christians sin, of course they do, we repent, God forgives us for the sake of his son Jesus. Hallelujah. But if you've made peace with sin in your life, if you've deluded yourself that it doesn't matter, repent immediately. Now the new thing that John introduces here in this passage is an emphasis upon Jesus' second coming. Go to the next slide, please. He, says tw- he raises it twice in this passage. Once in the first uh, verse, he says, Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Jesus is coming. I, try, I looked up some slides to see, can I find a picture of the second coming that, that would work? I went for this because it's kind of suggestive. I'm not sure any of the pictures really, you know. There's all these pictures of Jesus in a white robe. He's always got a long beard. I don't know why. And, uh, you know, there's all this stuff. But, so I decided not to go for a literal picture. But how did you imagine it? Well, first of all, we are told to continue in Jesus continue living out these three strands of our faith so that when he appears we won't be ashamed. And secondly, we're told uh, that, I love this verse, dear friends, we are the children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. I find that mind-blowing. Because we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him will purify themselves just as he is pure. So the, so the second coming is now raised as an incentive towards purity and continuing in Christ with these three strands in mind. So the second coming makes it all worthwhile. You know, when you stand before Jesus, your choice to be celibate out of marriage, which was huge, that will seem like a very good plan. Your choice to give away a lot of your material wealth to bless others will now seem like the best investment you ever made. The time you spent preparing for a second coming in prayer and worship, that all now seems to have paid off. There's no sacrifice that you could make for God that wouldn't be amply rewarded in the first 10 seconds of standing before Christ. And so in all of it, the message to these Christians is continue. Last slide, please. Or next slide. Continue. Do you know um, when you're downloading uh, some piece of software and at some point it says, do you want to continue? And you have to click to get any further. So I'm giving you one of those moments this morning. This is what you're called to. You're called to devote time to God, opening yourself to the Holy Spirit so that you'll experience God's transforming love. You're called then to, as that love grips you, give it to other people. Show kindness and love to others. And then 
you're called to continue in your conviction and faith in what the apostles taught. And you're called to, 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 as far as you can, to live a life of purity, holiness and righteousness. And when you get it wrong, you're called to seek God in your grief for having failed your father and ask his forgiveness, which he will freely grant. You're called to continue in all of that. But it's very costly. So... If you had a mouse button in if you had a mouse in your hand, would you click on the continue button? Or is it all a bit much? And stretching the metaphor, this passage reminds us that it's worth clicking the continue button repeatedly. Because eventually, when Jesus returns and the kingdom of God is fully downloaded the new program is very much worth having. God bless you.